0: I don't need to very
1: so I'll, I'll, If you go and sit down over there, so you, do you want to just check? I'm trying picks? to
0: clean up the thing here yeah. and be ready a bit. Yeah. Can you just check
1: these buttons to make sure they work? Here, <laughs> yeah, you need this. So so you need to Are you, you going to use slides? No, I don't need slides, i just Oh, oh I'll just then of that's time. why the, it wouldn't work because there aren't any Yeah,
2: right, I don't, I don't like this much. Much. Okay. So so just
1: take a seat introduce yeah. uh, Good evening. Um, my name is uh, Nick Stern. I'm Professor of Economics at the LSE. Um, more to the point, I'm a friend of Paul Polman. Uh, which gives me some kudos, Um, Paul is one of the outstanding leaders of our time. Uh, He's done it uh, whilst being one of the world's great business leaders, but he's not only a great business leader, he's a great leader in the sense that... Uh, He's a great leader in the sense that um, he has while he's doing business while he's drawing other business leaders together he has recognized taken on and pursued the great challenges of our time in particular the sustainable development goals he was on the group that designed the sustainable development goals he's been championing them in all kinds of business communities so he will tell you something about what he's been doing and how we can accelerate that process and uh, take it forward. You know, he's chair of the International Chamber of Commerce, uh member of the International Business Council of the World Economic Forum, chair of the B team, vice chair of the UN Global Compact. He and I and Ngoziya Konjo Awala are co-chairs of the New Climate Economy, the Global Commission on the Economy and Climate. And and I could go on. And he amazingly not only is on these things, he drives these things forward. So it's quite spectacular now the reason that you're here in such great numbers is because you know he's a uh, a great business leader but let me just underline one thing before i hand over to paul and paul is usually too cautious about explaining how well he's done in unilever which he's been ceo for nearly ten years now and you remember the um, there was an at- attack nearly two years ago by um, some man-eaters called Kraft, and um, Paul saw him off one weekend and then, for all I know, probably went out and played football. But this was a very big um, move on something that was fundamental, which was it was driving an attempt by very short-term capitalism to change something that had taken the long-term and responsible view. And they were seen off and that was very important. And since that time, their share price has gone down by a third and Unilever's share price has gone up by a third. So you can make the long-term view work. You can make responsibility work. And it's Paul of all people that has told us that. And by the way, if the young amongst you uh, are thinking of going to work for Unilever or some other responsible firm, you'd better get your applications in early because they get 1.8 million job applications a year. And it shows that uh, if you behave sensibly, take the long-term view, You get the best people and you make some money at the same time. But Paul, we uh, are all here to listen to you. I just wanted them to try to understand the quite enormous range and power and importance of what you've been up to. But we look forward very much to you talking to us about a new era for business. Thank you so much for coming.
0: Thanks, Nick. I appreciate it, and uh, good afternoon, everybody. I was just thinking, looking at the audience, etc., and I, I do have actually some prepared remarks, but ex- if this works, I'll just walk around, and it might be easier, and I'll just give you my honest remarks instead of company-fettered prepared remarks, <laughs> and see if that works. Nigel, what do you think? <laughs> do what he says. Does this work? Yes. It works. Can you hear me? Yeah, but it's probably this microphone. We'll check. Uh... <laughs> is this better? Can you no. him, the image, though? In center. Must put it in the center. Uh, this is all teamwork. Does this work? Because it's on mute. Does this work? <laughs> Who is uh, technology here? Why am I messing up the system, totally? <laughs>
1: The technology is on its way, I think
0: What do I need to do oh, oh, Applause. <laughs> well done okay, I prefer to just walk around anyway, but uh, first of all, I'd like to thank you uh, you all for being here tonight, and certainly for Nick for giving me the opportunity. As Nick mentioned, we've uh, worked together for the last few years now on doing a lot of things. And uh, obviously, everybody knows the Stern Report, which I think has really changed the uh, debate around climate change and, and the economic reasons for why we need to move forward. We wouldn't have had Paris without it. And since then, with the new climate economy and some other things that we have worked, we've really started to move, move the needle. But what I will argue with you is that uh, we might be going in the right direction. And, I don't think we need to spend too much time anymore convincing the, uh, the skeptics or the cynics around. Uh, we do have a serious gap between where we need to be and the speed with which we're moving. So it's all about scaling and, uh, and uh, speed. Uh, if there is one way to switch this off, might be even better, Nick, because we're looking right in the, is there one way to switch off this? The light. The light there. I think everybody has seen the chart. Normally oh I just pull a wire. Turn somewhere. the slide off. From if we can turn this light off, then we would all be friends tonight. <laughs> Sorry, you know what you're getting if you do it. Yeah,
2: that's <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: the uh, I'll get straight into it. Charles Dickens uh, wrote his uh, book, The Tale of Two Cities, in 1851 and uh, 1859. But but he he started the book of uh, it's the best of times, it's the worst of times, it's the spring of hope, it's the winter of despair. And I think that's more or less where we find ourselves right now on the global states. On the one hand, in the last 30, 40 years, we've never ever lifted so many people out of poverty. In fact, if you look at the original millennial development goals, which started at that time by Annan, the late Annan, in the year 2000, it talked about halving the number of people living in poverty, which at that time was defined as $1.25 a day. And lo and behold, 15 years later, we've actually achieved that target enormous amount of people better off. China, obviously, a big factor of that, but it's not only China. And actually, more people have now access to education than any time in history. Women have actually more rights than any time in history, believe it or not. Less people are dying at childbirth. Less people are going to bed hungry. In fact, more people have access to technology. If, If there's a time to be born, it's now. That's really why I wanted to start with this, Because this is not a doomsday scenario I'm going to share with you. This is a moment of opportunity. But unfortunately, it's also the worst of times. What we have discovered, and I think certainly increased our awareness a little bit more, when we had the financial crisis in 2007-2008, that the system in which we were creating this economic growth is simply not sustainable. What we saw, and more and more people started to realize at that time, was that a system that results in heavy levels of debt at government or private level, a system that results in enormous overconsumption, and frankly leaving too many people behind is not a sustainable system. What I would argue is that any system where too many people feel that they're not participating or left behind will ultimately rebel against itself. And what you see in different forms or another, without going into the political arena now, because that's not the purpose of this talk, but you see that happening in all countries, unfortunately. The challenges we we face are probably well-known. The first one is the climate change challenge that I'll talk about a little bit more in detail. But you've seen the latest IPCC report coming out. We're well off the trajectory where we need to be, well off what we also signed in Paris. And unfortunately, what we signed in Paris, where a lot of people worked on what we thought was a reasonably good agreement that we got, it basically bent a a 4.5 curve and put it slightly above 2%. Uh, and and then with a mechanism of ratcheting up any time we would renegotiate is really not on track. For example, if I give you a very simple example of that, 123 countries signed agreements in Paris on forestation or reforestation uh, um, and and to to increase again our our, uh, natural defense against climate change. Uh, None of the countries has done anything. In fact, last year, the deforestation rates were up 51%. We've never seen such a high increase. It's the size of a country like uh, New Zealand, uh, what we're talking about here. Um, we see climate change, the emissions actually after a year that was stable, probably more driven by a um, slowdown in the global economic activities. We see it now again picking up. You've seen the latest IC, IPCC report. Johan Rockström, who worked, used to work at the Resilience Institute in Sweden, he now works at the Potsdam Institute in Germany, uh, talks about nine planetary boundaries, and four of those planetary boundaries, he would argue, we are already well exceeding what, what uh, modern nature can handle. And although we think that we can negotiate with nature, it's uh, frankly, uh, nature doesn't negotiate. It's not a battle of us versus nature. Nature will do fine, it's a battle for us. The WWF just issued a new report, which is called the Living Planet Report, not long ago, and in there they would argue that our biodiversity is under serious stress. We're seeing the extinction of species at least at a thousand times faster than at the normal rates that we've seen in the history of mankind. In fact, I would argue that uh, the planet has been around, let's say, about five billion years. I would argue that in the last 20 to 30 years, we've done more damage to this planet than in the preceding five billion years. And my question is always simply, what does what gives us the right to do that? We're at the point now that we are might be getting into what some people would call a negative feedback loop, where things are actually becoming worse uh, by itself. We see that now already with the forests. Natural solutions in the forest would be one third of the climate solutions actually for Paris. And they're natural solutions and often the cheapest option. Um, but we're actually getting into a negative feedback loop where we don't have the forest as a carbon sink anymore, but in many places, they're becoming very close to carbon (coughs) emitters. The same is happening with the oceans uh, in the state. that is. So first challenge is climate change. The second challenge is our simple consumption pattern, how we consume. When there weren't so many people in the world, it was easy to consume and not so worry about the resources. We didn't have that issue really. But because of this enormous uh, growth, Um, we are finding out very quickly that we're running against the limits of some of these scarce resources that we have. You take the issue of plastics, which is very much on your minds undoubtedly, after the Richard Edinburgh, the Blue Ocean series, or the uh, National Geographic had a wonderful issue on on plastics. Uh, We all have the image of the famous whale floating on the beach in Denmark and, and cut open and it's full of plastics. In fact, we're on a trajectory right now that by the year 2050, there's more plastics in the ocean than fish. In fact, if you buy now fish already, I hate to say 90% chance that you're eating plastic on top of fish. Not good, that's all I can say. And half of that is actually coming from the clothes and washing, not just necessarily from the plastic bottles that you see floating there, but they're obviously the most visible ones. But the second, the second thing after climate change is therefore that we need to move from our linear consumption pattern of digging into the ground, putting it in a factory, producing stuff, and then throwing it in a landfill in the oceans. We need to find a way that we don't use extra resources. In fact, that we start to regenerate or replenish resources. The third issue that we have is an issue that Nick described in his uh, kind introduction which is that we've pumped so much money into the markets globally, especially since the financial crisis. And we've given so much freedom to our financial institutions that we actually have more money coming out of our ears than we know what to do with. In this world still, there's about $12 trillion with zero or negative interest rates. If you look at the US banking system, and some people are trying to argue against this, so I'm not sure that, you have to buy all the statistics, but it's basically directionally right is that only 15% of their lending is to the real economy. The other 85% is to what I call fufu dust, the derivatives markets and all the other things. By the way, that's how we got into trouble in the first place with the subprime market, far removed from reality. And, and, and then, if you want to earn returns on that money, you have to talk everybody up, up, and up on something that hasn't any substance. It's kind of a scary thing. And because that money is chasing returns, uh, we have a global economy that's a hard, about 100 billion. We have uh, financial instruments and everything between 6 and 700 uh, trillion. Uh, so there's a difference between 100 and 6 to 700. Uh, and because they need to desperately chase returns, the financial market is becoming shorter and shorter and shorter term. And the issues that we are facing or food security or climate change or poverty, and all the ones that I talk about cannot be solved by just the minoptic focus on quarterly reporting. In fact, the pressure on the short term is so much that most companies now basically run their companies for their shareholders to ensure that they get their returns very quickly. And that money, as you know, moves around very quickly. The average lifetime now of a publicly traded company has come down to 17 years because they're running it for the shareholders, not for what they should be running it, which is really for society. It's also confusing for a CEO. The average tenure of a CEO is less than four and a half years now. Most of the company's market cap is now traded, not by humans, but by computers. A company's market cap, even for a company the size of Unilever, in four or five months it can be traded. It's total market cap. So the third challenge after climate change and... And um, overconsumption and planetary boundary stress there is the financial markets going uh, increasingly to the shorter term, discounting more and more because of the uncertainties we've created for the future. And then the final challenge I would point out in in the interest of time is one in terms of an economic system that simply isn't inclusive anymore. Last year's overall global wealth generation, 84% of that went to the top 1% of the world population. And the bottom three and a half billion people in this world didn't see anything of that wealth creation. I just flew in yesterday from Ethiopia and Kenya, and I was in the Kiberu slum in Kenya, which is one of the biggest slums, more than a million people living there. You can see what I mean. A system where a few people benefit and where the rest doesn't see any improvements is not going to be sustainable. You now have eight people, which we know by name, great people, by the way, but we have eight people that have the same total wealth than the bottom three and a half billion people so we need to find an economic system that is different and that's really where the challenge is normally we rely on governments which is very fine to do and they've served us very well in the past in some places they continue to serve as well but it's very clear that as these issues become more global the issues of climate change the issues of uh, the financial markets cyber security and all the other things Unfortunately, our global governance mechanism isn't quite functioning anymore. They were designed, not surprisingly, at the time of Bretton Woods, which was 1944. We created great institutions that we still benefit from, but they were designed at a time when about 80, 85% of the wealth economy was basically concentrated in what we now conveniently call Western Europe and North America. The wealth has moved on. If you run a company, any of you who might run a company, will have between 1944 and now, will probably have reinvented their own companies 15, 20 times to stay alive in this changing environment. We haven't really done that at that speed, at least, I could argue, at the global level. And hence, the global governance is failing us right now. So my argument is very simple. If the global governance is failing, we can all laugh about competition, uh, of of, uh, laugh about politicians. But if we have these challenges, we need to take that responsibility to do something about it. If we don't, who is? We cannot just sit here and see the whole thing sink. So it's very important that business steps up. Now it's not easy to be a business leader, because the challenge that we have very simple in this economy. We've never faced that. We've never decarbonized the global economy. We're carbon junkies, but we do need to decarbonize. There's no alternative. We need to move to a circular economy model versus a linear. We don't know how to do that. We've never done it. We need to make it more inclusive. We haven't figured out how to do that either. So all of these challenges come at the same time when global governance is failing us. Now, we also know that there is no business case in poverty, and we also know that businesses cannot exist in societies that fail. For that reason, it's important, I believe, that the private sector stands up. The reason that companies are allowed to exist is because society allows them to exist. When these companies were invented in the first place, they were there to address a societal problem that they were better able to address in an organized way than anybody else. Companies were not invented for the shareholders. Companies were invented to share the needs, to solve the needs of these multiple stakeholders. When Lord Lever created his company at the end of the 19th century, well, he didn't have shareholders, but he wasn't there to say, I'm going to maximize my quarterly profits. He said there's a problem of hygiene in the UK, when even in Victorian Britain, one out of uh, of two babies didn't make it past the first year because of the enormous issues of hygiene. So he invented a soap, sunlight or Lifebuoy or things that you, that you know. And his business model was one of what he always called shared prosperity, being sure that everybody benefits. He built Port Sunlight before his factories were full. He took care of the, 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 the people that provide the materials, like Leverville in the Congo in those days, if it would have existed today still. Obviously got lost in the civil wars, but it would still be one of the model villages in Africa, etc., etc. He had the highest number of volunteers in World War One, which I didn't understand. So I went into this: Why? Why did this company have the highest number of volunteers in World War One? Because he guaranteed them all their jobs back, and he kept paying the women, whilst the men were absent. Unfortunately, not many men returned, but they were proud to serve their countries because they knew there was a guaranteed shared prosperity, even for for the people left behind. So that's the concept I think that built these great companies and it served him well and it still serves as well today. Business cannot be a bystander in a system that gives them life in the first place. Now this is an overwhelming agenda that confuses a lot of people. But fortunately, in September 2015, 193 countries came together in the UN and signed something very important, which was the sequence of the, the Millennial Development Goals, which conveniently were called Sustainable Development Goals. Unlike the Millennial Development Goals, which focused mainly on the developing markets, for the first time we had Universal Goals. We also recognized that the issues that were there in 2000, HIV, AIDS, etc., were enormous issues then. The issues in 2015 were dramatically different. And the plan of the Sustainable Development Goals was very simple. His all for cry is to not leave anybody behind. Basically to finish the job. If we have halved it, we can finish it and go all the way. Eugene Bolt ran the 100 meters and did that very well. He didn't stop at 50 meters and said, oh, I'm tired, I'll, I'll run the other 50 later. When the Apollo went to the moon, it didn't say, oh, halfway, I'll go back because I'm hungry, I'll better go home. No, it finished and went to the moon. I recently went to a wonderful concert from Coldplay, where you pay a fortune to listen. But it didn't stop halfway through the song. Oh, guys, come back later. I'll finish the rest. We have to finish the job. We have reduced it by half. We now have 15 years to finish it, to irreversibly eradicate poverty, and doing that now in a more sustainable and equitable way. Now, <coughs> it's confusing because we the wealth is big and complex. So we have 17 goals, ranging from uh, 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 food security to access to uh, sanitation and hygiene, to gender equality, to climate change, to protecting our land, oceans, or forests. Goals like partnership, goal number 17, or or goal 16, peace and justice, to ensure that we don't have corruption, rule and law, and all the other things. But the 17 goals are a little bit confusing for business. So we said we'll create a commission. We asked Mark Mollock-Brown to chair a commission for business and sustainable development, to simplify that and to bring it into business language. Any CEO you meet, with luck, they might remember what business they're in, they certainly will remember how much money they make, and they might remember the name of their husband or wife, but that's about it. So 17 goals is quite a lot for them. (laughs) So we said, we'll simply find out. And we looked at basically four areas, food and land use, energy transition, cities, and health and well-being. And just looking in these four areas, we found an opportunity of over 12 trillion dollars and 380 million incremental job creation. Then, with the commission that Nick and Ngozi and myself chair, we looked again at the next steps for climate change alone. Uh, the, uh, the new climate economy. Better growth, we called it. Better, better climate, better growth. And uh, we found that it is not only the growth story of the century, that if you attack climate change alone, you will unlock enormous opportunities for economic growth in many of the areas I mentioned. In in that report, which we only did last year, one year after the other report, we found an economic opportunity of 26 trillion dollars. Opportunities, again, to uh, create uh, livelihoods and and save livelihoods uh, at the same rates as, as what we saw before. So the economic opportunities of the Sustainable Development Goals are enormous. In fact, the UN estimates that to implement these Sustainable Development Goals costs us anywhere between 3 to $5 trillion a year. I would argue that on each of these 17 goals, we already incur a cost that is higher than the implementation of all the goals. Sounds scary, no? But that is actually the case. And we'll go in later into why, why aren't we doing something about it. You take climate, cha- climate uh, action, which is goal number 13 huh? in, in terms of uh, mitigating climate uh, change. Uh, the IMF estimates that currently we are already paying $5.3 trillion in actual costs. I think these numbers are going to be much higher. 18 of the last 19 years have been the warmest years on record. The cost of flooding and droughts that we've had is over $1.3 trillion just this year alone. The total cost of climate change, 5.3 trillion dollars. That's already at the high end of the goal, to implement all of the goals. And if that isn't enough, you look at our food and land use systems, a totally broken system, where on the one hand, we keep cutting down the forests that if it doesn't matter, we keep the farmers as poor as they need to be, which is very poor, 85% of the poor people are subsistent farmers. We don't give them enough nutrition, so they're stunted. We let 840 million people go to bed hungry, not even knowing if they wake up the next day. We have the audacity to waste 30 to 40% of the food we produce, as if we don't care. That's what is happening globally. If food waste would be a country, it would be the third biggest emitter on carbon. And then on the other end, we're creating over 2 billion people that are overweight and obese, starting probably the biggest epidemic that the, that the world has ever <coughs> seen on healthcare care costs. And then we have the audacity to call ourselves the most intelligent species. So, on the whole food system alone already, for every dollar we would invest, we get a $30 return. But we're not doing it. My last point would be on goal number 16, which is um, um, justice, basically uh, peace and justice, if you want to. The, the goal of, of fighting corruption, of having access to rule of law. This well, just on... Uh, um, conflict prevention and wars is spending 10 to 12 trillion dollars, twice what it takes to implement the goals. And obviously, we measure the wrong things. We measure GDP growth when we produce more weapons. We don't have a number for peace. We measure GDP growth when we produce more. We don't have a number for making people happier or more secure. We love to have GDP growth by putting more cars and burning more fossil fuel on on the map. Every fossil fuel we burn is a GDP number. The solar that gives us free energy doesn't show up in GDP. Are we measuring the right thing? Now I've never met a CEO who wants more unemployment, more air pollution, more people going to bed hungry. It's not so simple to say, well, let's blame business because they're all just monoptically focused on their salaries or their returns. We're basically all good people. Even the CEOs in companies, at least the ones I know, are also human beings. They have families. They think about the future. Then why collectively aren't we behaving that way? And my simple answer, which is not that simple to solve, but we have to do that. My simple answer is basically, we're behaving that way because we're operating in certain boundaries that make us behave that way. And often in our short-termism, which also has crept into the political system and many other systems in the world. If you now meet a politician that can think beyond three months or six months, you're lucky. Look how this country has been paralyzed the last two years just by Brexit alone. Frankly, not moving any other thing further. And that that focus has been monotically on on the next two months or three months. And that's true for every other country. It's not meant to be a critique to the UK, although I'd happily give it to you. (laughs) But, but, you know, so you cannot solve these issues if you don't start to not look at the symptoms and try to remedy the symptoms. You need a little bit more space to change and to identify and change these underlying causes. If you move these boundaries, you'll get better behavior. So let me bring it back to my company very simply. If we have an, a big sales force that is selling our products and I reward the salespeople on the number of orders they write, they're going to write a lot of orders, but they're going to be very small orders. If I reward them on customer service, they're going to behave differently. So the way we incentivize people is, is a function of the boundaries we put around them. So if we want to start valuing um, uh, in, our, in our capitalistic system, we obviously are very good in optimizing the return on financial capital. I think we've shown that, and some people are incredibly uh, smart in benefiting from that. But that's because our, ca- our capitalistic system only rewards return on financial capital. But what if we would also reward our capitalist system with return on social and environmental capital? We would be well-placed to optimize it. That's why it's so absolutely important to put a price on carbon. Way to change the boundaries in which we operate. On. Sometimes it can be done by ourselves, with the industry, with a collection of people. Sometimes you need governments to put these frameworks in place. I would argue, for the interest of time, to, to stop that. In order to solve the world's problems, we frankly have all the answers. Yes, it would be better to have a little bit more carbon capture storage technology, the battery technology, and some other things that undoubtedly technology will bring and innovations will bring. That always helps. But basically, we have everything today to feed the people that need to be fed. We have everything today to protect our forests and move to more sustainable farming. We have everything today to change our dietary habits if we wanted to. In fact, we have invented the toilet. Why are we not giving it to the 1.5 billion people that don't have it? If you think we don't have any money, you're wrong also. We have more money coming out of our ears than we know what to do with We don't need more people to go to Mars or Pluto to find the answer, nor do we actually need more PhDs, although it's obviously happy if you have one. <laughs> you know. So what is missing, in my opinion, is, is human willpower, to be honest. It basically boils down to human willpower. The many changes in industry happen, or the many changes in the world happen because people make them happen. It starts with an idea. Do black lives matter? We are still in. Rosa Parks refusing to stand up on the bus. The enormous force of Nelson Mandela or Gandhi. It is people that make the changes. So my argument is we're short of people and trees. That's why it's so important that we invest in leaders, in the educational systems. Most important thing, investing in youth and women, highest return. Over and over proven, including in our value chains. We need leaders with a high level of awareness what is going on. But awareness is not enough. Leaders <coughs> need to also then be engaged to do something about it. with a high level of humanity and humility. We need leaders that are more purpose-driven, that understand that putting the interest of others ahead of their own is actually in their own interest. Ultimately, they'll be better off. Leaders that can think Intergenerational. Leaders that can work in partnership. Because it's very clear, as Einstein said it well when he said the definition of insanity is to do the same thing over and over again and expect different results. It's not going to happen. We have to work at a different level together. Different forms of partnership than we've had before. Partnerships that are intergenerational. Partnerships that are for the common good. Partnerships built on a high level of trust and commitment to put yourself to the service of others. These are skills, I would argue, that you indeed find more in the uh, female side than in the male side. That's why it's not surprising that two years ago I picked up one book that had just appeared in the, one of the bookstores in the US which said, The End of the Era of Men. I picked it up because I was a little worried about myself. <laughs> but the book argued very, very eloquently that it definitely is the era of women. And that's why it's so important. That we invest in women and, and children. The, um, the final thing I'd say is um, the Dalai Lama said it well, in my opinion, when he said that if you seek enlightenment just for yourself, to advance yourself, you miss purpose. But if you seek enlightenment to advance other people's uh, needs, then you are with purpose. Really getting to the essence of putting yourself to the service of others. I always remind people that we belong to the lucky 2% in this world. I grew up in the Netherlands. My father worked in a factory. We had six children. We frankly didn't have much money. I'm the first one in my family that went to university. But I could go because we didn't have to worry making it past the age of five. We always had a toilet at home. I always had food. I never remember really being hungry. We got free education from the government that put us here. We couldn't have afforded it, so we were lucky. I didn't do anything to deserve that. We won the lottery ticket of life. Now, if you belong in that group that basically is financially independent, can do what they want, can move around, can work for companies, can pursue their desires, you really only belong to the 2% of the world population. And if you belong to that only 2% of the world population that is lucky enough to have won that lottery ticket of life, then it is your duty to put yourselves to the surface of the other 98%. If and when we do, we'll all be better off. Human willpower is what we are missing. And by the way, as Al Gore always points out, that in itself is a renewable resource, so that's why we like it. So thanks for that. I think I'm basically on my time, Nick. You were having. To, you have to give me a warning shot. No, no, you, but you then we can open it up for anything. Absolutely. Yeah, okay. I'm to time it.
1: Thank you. Thank you so much, Paul. Um, Let let me ask one or two questions, or let's try to develop one or two ideas together, and then we'll open it up. Um, We'll probably have a good half an hour, 35 minutes for questions, so if you could be contemplating your questions, uh, including contemplating the brevity of your questions, um, then we'll have as much time as possible and many people as possible uh, pitching into this discussion. Um, Paul, I wanted to come back to the challenge of speed, which you uh, emphasized so strongly, so persuasively. Uh, Let me try to put it simply with a a different set of numbers. Um, The world economy will likely, as conventionally measured, will likely double in the next 20 years or so. I mean, 3.1, 3.2 growth rate. In that period, we have to cut emissions by at least 25%, probably more, to uh, give ourselves any chance of the Paris uh, target of well below 2 degrees, let alone the the 1.5. So if that new economy looks anything like the one that we currently have, our emissions will go up by 50, 60, 100% not come down by 25, 30%. So the next 20, and then we would be setting off for three, four degrees. So, um, which would be catastrophic, let's remind ourselves. We've just seen how big the difference is between 1.5 and 2 degrees in the most recent um, uh, report of the IPCC. So... Uh, there's the challenge of speed. I mean, you put it, you quoted Johann Rockström and how we're already past three or four of um, the nine boundaries that, that he described. So the question then is the, the one you put to us, but I've just tried to underline it with some boring economics, <laughs> is the, uh, it's, the question is the challenge of really big changes in real time. Now, We do actually know, as you've described very well, how to do this. Um, So the question is, will we be able, through bottom-up political pressures, uh, business leadership, whatever leadership we point to, will we be able to make this in real time? Um, So it's one thing to note the speed. Another thing to note that it's hard, but of course the big thing is how to do it. And how can we deliver on that change? And where are the big, as it were, levers, tipping points, that you could say, if we did these, there's no one shot, obviously, but if we did these five or six things, we'd start to be generating the kind of pace that we need. If we can identify those, what are the political business pressures that are gonna make them actually happen?
0: Yeah, that's a good question, and obviously it is a, a, a broader, change what I I, I used to be more judgmental like why don't these people or these companies get it and why don't they change and and try to try to pursue this nirvana of perfectness why doesn't everybody you know uh, take care of the scarce resources etc but if you need to if you're in front of this enormous challenge that Nick has well laid out and uh and you need to move at the speed, then I think the better energy is placed on um, looking at uh, how do you create the the tipping points needed. And I've discovered that it actually is easier than we think um, to create tipping points. In many of the markets that need to change, if you can get 20 to 30% of the market to change, I think you're close to a tipping point Mm. of getting the rest of the market to change. I.e. tipping points then mean politicians might get interested or uh, other companies start uh, pursuing this. So you take, for example, carbon pricing, which is a good example, and obviously you are much more uh, knowledgeable about the carbon pricing. Right now we have about 25%, to keep it simple, of the world on the cap and trade and carbon pricing systems. The Chinese now coming in, though the carbon pricing is still low. I think that's actually less important than having a carbon pricing in the first place. Now you see more companies internalizing an internal price on carbon. You see more companies coming on board with science-based targets. Uh, The the task force of financial disclosure, the Carney Bloomberg Task Force, as it's called, has now uh, significantly more companies. I think it's up to $6 trillion of of turnover, Nigel. I need to look at Nigel for the latest numbers. But... uh, committed to that. So there is a tipping point happening when you get to 30. We look at um, what are the major financial systems or the major systems that need to change that we need to focus on. Uh, The first one would be the energy system. And there are some tipping points happening in the renewable energy, in the electric vehicles. There are real tipping points happening in the world right now. Unilever itself, we we are now 70% green energy for the whole company. We will be by uh, 2030 and we will be faster, totally green. And frankly, all the investments I've made globally into greening our value chain have never had a payout of uh, more than three years. In fact, far less. Now we are not subject to a carbon price. We have uh, cheap uh, energy because it's it's uh, green energy. And uh, you know, even brands like our ice cream brands, like uh, Ben and Jerry's, etc., have a module that is, believe it or not, in ice cream that you can have totally green. Set your factory up with biomass. You have your uh, vehicles uh, with electric vehicles. You have your ice cream cabinets with natural refrigerants, and off you go. So the first system is our energy system, and focus on tipping points there. Uh, The second one that that doesn't get enough attention is the food and land use system. 30% of the solution, some people would argue more. Uh, 3% of the financing, 1% of the attention. And, And yet it's the easiest one to solve, in my opinion, if we can get people behind that. It means, you know, that some of the aspects I talked about, how we protect our forests uh, would be one of the more important parts, how we restore degraded land, how we attack issues like food waste. Um, and then the, the underlying one that needs to be changed is the financial system itself. We have, unfortunately, driven by a lot of regulation on top of that by a history that we're still trying to catch up, we have created a very conservative, inward-looking, and actually short-term focused financial system, where actually many of the regulations that are out there now, the, coming out of the Basel III's and others, would would have banks argue that they cannot even lend to these longer-term projects. So how do we change the multilateral banks? How do we change the international financing to look at, first of all, more sustainable financing, to look at blended financing, where some of the institutions take more of the risk so that it attracts more money from the private sector to accelerate the the financing of the Sustainable Development Goals. If we focus on the energy transition, and this is a climate change discussion, on the energy transition, on the uh, food and land use, and increasingly getting the financial market to be interested in it, I think we can accelerate this conversion fairly quickly.
1: So if we're thinking about how those changes come about, In a sense, the very last point, which you made very strongly about the financial sector, is that we could use the speed of the financial sector actually to turn things the the other way. I mean, if all sovereign wealth funds uh, decided they were gonna be sustainable from now on, I mean, Norway already edging in that direction, if the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosure, uh, where the the financial institutions are uh, obligated to uh, disclose how much of their portfolio is in unsustainable um, investments. Uh, if that became compulsory, um, that could give you a very fast change. If all companies had the default option for their pensions to be as it is in Unilever, as it is in HSBC, to be a, a future fund which is sustainable. If um, we had a regulation that no cars uh, which you use an internal combustion engine, could be sold after 2030. They do in India. Yeah. We've, we have a very modest 2040 in the UK, but we can bring that uh, forward. You know, there are interventions um, which could make a very, very big difference. And then there's the challenge of getting people to demand those things, because those are things we could do. Uh, and, and things like the default option for pensions, companies yeah. can do. But the question is, how do you create the pressure from people to make that happen? What, or what kinds of pressures from individuals, consumers, yeah. could make that happen?
0: So the main one, by the way, if I may add one to it, if you put State Street, BlackRock, uh, Fidelity, and Vanguard in one room, you could do it. It's that, you know, it's that amazing, actually. Yeah. Because that's, that's basically an economy that's bigger than the U.S. economy, just in investments there, if they would demand it. So we already have 80 trillion of money in the management demanding a price on carbon uh, from the financial institutions. PRI, which is also about that level, is now pushing that. So I think we are in, in the tipping points. How do we... Um, what I believe is that the, it, it needs us to work together. Trust is low. It, we are on the defense, all of us. The financial industry is on the defensive. Governments on the defensive. Businesses, CEOs, because of this low trust, we're in this negative cycle. Mm. So one of the main things that you can do with all of us is is to drive for more transparency. Unilever is, is a high overall... Um, uh, Uh, reputation, if you would call it, like on the globe scan, for example. And one of the reasons I believe is we put 50 targets out there. You can ask us any question and we'd be happy to to show you that. And we'll hold ourselves accountable and we drive that forward. So that is also the idea of the task force. When you make it um, transparent, the task force saying, what is your risk in your value chain? Something the financial markets are increasingly demanding. Then when the companies have to disclose that, you see them taking action faster. So one of the main, re- main things that you can do to drive this behavioral change that we're talking about is, is to drive more uh, transparency. Sometimes that transparency happens by itself. The problem with climate change is you can't see it, actually less transparency. Plastics you can see. Why is the plastic issue going so fast? <laughs> because it's so visible. So if we can make more things visible... We have a hard time, for example, on having companies disclose and governments ask, "What is your human rights standards in your value chain?" We have uh, 70 years now of the uh, principles of human rights. You'd think in 70 years, we would be further than we are today if you really look at the enormous human rights valu- violations that are still going on around the world. Why don't we force every company to publish what they're doing in their value chain, or if they have has the human rights issues? There's nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that. With the same uh, enthusiasm, by the way, as we now say, uh, how are you doing on gender diversity or pay cap? Now, I believe as a businessman that it's better not to have all these governments write different regulations and often ill-conceived. Why don't we proactively start doing that and create broader coalitions that uh, do this? That's why we've created, for example, the Global Consumer Goods Forum of all the major retailers and manufacturers in the world. Uh, In this country, Tesco would be part of that, Walmart all the big companies like ours that produce. And um, together, we say, we move out of deforestation. Together, we say, we go to natural refrigerants in all of our cabinets. Together, we say, these are the minimum standards of human rights. So you make more and more of these areas pre-competitive and are transparent about that progress. People don't mind that you're not perfect, but people certainly want to see you actively walking that journey. So if we can create that momentum, get more things pre-competitive, more uh, uh, transparent, I think you can drive uh, behavior, I'm talking in the private sector, faster than we do today.
1: One last question before we throw it open, you've described a process and you've lived the process in Unilever, which shows that those firms that do take a long-term view, do behave responsibly. Can and for very good reason, are likely to be more profitable. And there's more and more evidence for for that view. How fast is that sinking in in the corporate sector?
0: Um, s- uh, slower than I thought over the last 10 years because we already said 10 years ago we're going to decouple our growth from environmental impact we're going to improve our overall social impact mm-hmm. we put all these targets out there building 25 million toilets creating 5 million jobs for smallholder farmers all of our brands have actually what some people would call weird targets we, do what we want to reach 1 billion people with hand washing so that they can make it past the age of 5 we have targets on how many women we want to reach to build uh, self-esteem and we link that to many of our brands. And we can show that our brands that have that stronger purpose grow faster and are more profitable. Yeah. So it's not only an issue of uh, how do I get a green tomato and 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 cut my tomato waste, it's an, it's an integrated uh, business plan. We've also shown that uh, unlike CSR, where you basically stick to your own operations or parts of your operations, usually have a separate department running it, I call it page two of the annual report. Um, you know, we've shown that Um, that you have to take responsibility of your total global impact. You can outsource your value chain, outsource your supply chain, but you cannot outsource your responsibilities. And, uh, And the impact often that you have in your total value chain is much bigger. Now, it's hard work. Some of these things require a few years to make these investments. Some of these investments cannot be made until some other assumptions or rules, laws, or regulations are put in place. The tenures of CEOs sometimes are too short, as I mentioned, to attack these bigger issues or drive them. But increasingly, we can show that it's a good investment. I always ask a very simple question, you know. We invest in uh, factories, but they only pay out five years, 10 years from now, before you have the factory full. It doesn't pay out right away. We, invest in IT systems that might pay out in 15 years. They're heavy investments. We invest in people because we want them to be the next CEO or whatever, that might be 25 or 30 years. But for some reason we refuse to invest in the future of mankind. It doesn't make any sense. So any of these investments that we do, you cannot you know, uh, boil the ocean at once, but you can certainly over a 10 year period um, space out these investments, including in making your total value chain more sustainable. And what we now find is that when you have sustainable sourced agriculture, which we now have about 60% from what used to be 10%, it's actually uh, more climate resistant, it's actually more desirable for consumers, less pesticides, less water uses, all the stuff, and it's absolutely a, a more resilient value chain, but it's also lower cost. When we move our value chain to green energy, we can't do that right away. We have still some factories in the world that are supplied by coal, and, and uh, we cannot influence right away the, uh, the energy supply. We can offset it, but we cannot directly, but in 10 years' time, we can. But all the green energy to us is now cheaper than fossil fuel. So if you make a 10-year plan, you can get there. But you see other benefits. You become an attractive uh, employer <coughs> brand because you are part of the solution, not the problem. You have a higher engagement. You, you save costs. We save or 500 million a year now, as we calculated, versus the uh, business-as-usual scenario. You drive your innovations better because you're closer to the needs that are there. That, that the consumer signals uh, that you might not have picked up. So overall, I think increasingly you're showing that a, an investment portfolio around ESG, environmental social governance, uh, is giving you a better return longer term uh, than, than any other thing. And, and that's how it should be. Now, invest increasingly investors are starting to realize that, that this is happening, and, but it's unfortunately happening because we've waited so long that the cost of inaction is higher than the cost of action, but that helps us now. But also they start to realize that it's not good to just only provide a, a pension and a return, but you need to also ensure that people can live in that world that they're going to retire in, <laughs> you know. So, so they're starting to, I think, make these connections and I think that part of the world will, will see an acceleration. At least I'm hopeful.
1: Very good. One thing you can do as students and you start to go into your first uh, jobs is make sure your pension plan is going the right way. So uh, we'll take um, three questions at a time. Um, There's a green jumper there first. Uh, No, a bit further back. Then, then there's next to be there's a red jumper just here, just down the front.
0: When well, Nick said three questions, it's not each person.
1: No, oh. no. <laughs> <laughs> and, the, and then we'll Hoping then you. we'll go to the tie-wearing person over there.
2: Yes. Okay. Th- thank you. So um, I'm Dutch myself, and I'd like to ask you about the topic that has not been addressed yet namely the dividend tax in the Netherlands um, so how how I perceived it um, is that this tax basically addressed a point where Unilever sort of showed how this long-term capitalism model can actually fail um, because you yourself um, had to comply to the short term basically questions of British shareholders you lobbied um, to move uh, Netherlands, uh, Unilever to the Netherlands in order to protect it against these um attacks from shareholders like crafts um but actually you have also mentioned uh, how business leaders are limited uh, by boundaries uh, within the financial system and i think this is a case uh, where you yourself were actually um limited by these boundaries of the financial system but by pursuing your aims um Created a democratic deficit in the Netherlands. There were 80 per- 80%, or more than 80% of Dutch citizens, were against the abolition of the Dutch dividend tax, which was proposed by big multilateral comp- corporations like Unilever in order to um, please British shareholders. Um, so I'd like you actually to elaborate a bit further on on the solution of making business work for for society. Um, yeah. and, and your failure to, on the one hand, have Three. global governance no, I and... I can this quickly. Um,
0: yeah. Okay, yeah. I think we have you got your point. The, um, <laughs> but your, your, your question or your statement or, or your lecture has a lot of uh, assumptions. <laughs> has a lot of assumptions in there that, frankly, are not true. And that's how, where you see how you can influence a population and a, and a populism. First of all... We are a dually listed company, anglo dutch which is in a m- world that is moving much faster, is giving you limitations to be long-term successful. It actually opens you up to attacks, because you only have to attack the half of us, and you hold us totally hostage. So it actually prevents us from being more longer term. So we decided that it would be good to be a single uh, company. Like, in fact, the 35 dually listed companies in the last 10 years, only six are left. So this is the trend, everybody understands that, the shareholders as well. Now, the shareholders in any country, in the UK, you don't have dividend withholding tax. So we can incorporate in the UK, and that's a valid option. We said if the Netherlands is an option for the shareholders, then obviously they're not going to uh, go to the Netherlands if they have to pay more tax. If you can buy your same products cheaper in Aldi than in Tesco, you go to Aldi. It would be naive to think that. Now then the Dutch papers position this as we don't like tax. Well, if we don't like tax, I wouldn't have chosen the Netherlands or the UK to make that a single company. I could have gone to the Bahamas or some other things. So it's not a tax issue for us. In fact, we pay quite a lot of tax and we're proud of it. And I've also said in the Netherlands, I would actually don't mind paying more tax if it's well spent. So then it gets to what tax system there is. And the government probably didn't do it's best job to explain that it became a discussion of we are not going to have the dividend withholding tax in the Netherlands the revenues so grossly overstated but we don't have these revenues so that goes at the expense of poor people of schooling and education so you all of a sudden become a criminal it's not true at all I just say have the right tax system have the right tax system the Netherlands happens to be a very open company a country where there are no natural resources you depend on uh, your global links. It's probably one of the most global countries in the world, by Singapore or others. If you don't want to have the multinationals there, which is a choice, it's a democratic choice, you're going to miss out a lot on the economy. But the debate became a political debate between two parties. Is there an opportunity to have the government fall or not? It's nothing to do with Unilever. And the many of the real issues that needed to be talked on how do you make these economies function for all, we're not being discussed in these emotions. That's a <coughs> pity. A pity to such an extent that the shareholders said, if that is the risk we're taking, we're not going to vote for it, so we had to call it off. It's a missed opportunity for the Netherlands, not for Unilever, we'll find a solution. Might not be the best that we can propose, which is our fiduciary duties, but it certainly is, is a, 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 will, will end up in a situation for us that we can run the company efficiently long term. So it's not a shareholder issue this at all, nor is it an issue to go to the Netherlands for protection. We don't need to go to the Netherlands for protection. There are many companies in the world that are not in the Netherlands, and the protection in the Netherlands under their corporate governance code is increasingly converging with other countries. In fact, there are many other countries that have better protection in in, in, uh, governance codes. The US has actually more protection in terms of what they can do with uh, golden shares or protecting against takeovers than you can do in any other country. So the issue that was being played in the Netherlands, and I'm appreciative that you brought it up, is, is an issue that is totally different than what you're insinuating in your questions. It's actually the opposite.
1: Okay. Thank you. Thank you, Paul. L- let, let me try again at having three in a row, and could you b- make your question a, a little even shorter, Definitely please? be yeah. brief, Yeah. Thank you. Thank you very much for an interesting discussion, first of all. Um, That's was, that was, raised some really great points. Um, as influential people, you've no doubt come across lots of other influential people too. So I was
2: wondering whether or not you might be able to offer some insight into their psychology. Like I don't quite understand how they appear to act in ways that are
1: against, well, they're against self-interest and, and also against the interests of those that they care about. Um, I was wondering whether or not you can offer us some insights on that. Thank you. Thank you, and uh, gentleman right over there, and then we'll. Thanks, um, and then there's another red sweater just here. Yeah.
3: So my name is Steve Podmore of, of Big Crowd and, and Transform Global. You first of all, thank you, Nick and Paul, for your leadership on these issues for quite some time. Um, you both mentioned there's all the money in the world is out there, and there was kind of a shopping list of if we did this, if we did this, if we did this. Um, My observation uh, for for quite a number of years, 12 years, is there is massive resistance to systemic innovation in finance of, uh, for example, blended capital, you mentioned that. There are countless projects out there, but they're just not seeing the light of day, and these game-changing projects, and I, I, I would hazard a guess, there's probably at least 20 to 50 people in this room who've got game-changing ideas to address one or more of the sustainable development goals and they are struggling like crazy to get access to risk capital and the support so they can win the support of people like yourselves and serious investment. So my question is very simple. Where do you see systemic innovation in finance that is patient, that is intelligent, that is long-term and that can transform how tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of projects who are begging and trying to get funded are are just failing. Thank
1: Thank you. you. And then uh, this lady here. And then we'll take those three and then we'll go around for another three.
4: Sorry. Hi. Uh, Thank you for a very insightful talk. I just have two small questions. Uh, Firstly, when you were talking about climate change, you mentioned that we're entering a negative feedback system. And I was just wondering if you actually meant that we're entering a positive feedback system because I would say that um, we are moving further and further away from the equilibriums that have existed for thousands of thousands of years due to human action. I, wa- I was just wondering if that was a small miss, uh, mistake. Yeah, no, your
0: question <laughs> is right. It's just how, <laughs> how you define it. A negative loop means it becomes worse. It doesn't become better.
4: Um, so we're know. in this
0: negative loop where it becomes worse.
4: Um, I would say that in traditional climate science, we would argue that positive means that it's self-reinforcing. Yeah. So that okay, it. Okay, but then
0: then it is positive in that I just didn't go to LSE. <laughs> <laughs> A negative, negative loop. Uh, negative loop is bad.
4: Um. But secondly, I was just wondering if you could um, give a bit of insight into what you think the balance of responsibility is between consumers and companies and which are um, which have more responsibility in driving um, the yeah, change. You've
0: that's good Okay, Paul. So I've come out of the um, discussions about uh, whose fault it is or whose responsibility it is. I find it very uh, uh, much more productive and actually advance the things we want to solve much quicker if we find the like-minded people that have the same objective to solve it i just came from africa i run a foundation there for blind people i want all the blind people to be in school i don't really care if i have companies that work with me because they feel it's good for their employees that it motivates them, that I have NGOs that come with me because they have knowledge of working in the, on the ground with these people itself, or that I get governments in the room that help me so I don't pay an import duty on braille machines, or that I get them to take some responsibility. So I bring these people in the same room, and together we solve it. So if you get like-minded people aligned around the same objectives, it's the best thing to do. That's why I often say what, what, gov- what, what companies need to do is right now is help de-risk the political process, we cannot just let them go out there right now in Poland and negotiate when we don't give them the tools. And it requires everybody. And by the way, what I found in Unilever is that when we bring all these people together, the product that you have is much better. I used to chair the uh, task force on food security for the G20, which was called the B20. But what it dawned on me is it shouldn't be our business that is the B, business 20, to do food security. We asked the Barbara Stockings or the OECD, Angel Quirieras, the uh, the... Uh, uh, the uh, uh, other, uh, other organizations, uh, uh, Greenpeace and others, to join us. And all of a sudden there were issues of biofuel, there were issues of human rights, there were issues of women in our value chain. And what we produced at that time for Los Cabos was significantly better and still standing today. We could have never done that alone. I'm building now a tea plantation in Rwanda um, because we need to create jobs in Africa. Africa goes from 1 billion people to 2.3 billion people. Half of the world's use will be there. Uh, We can't even handle it now in Europe. Think about then. Uh, Africa cannot create the jobs or cannot have the food enough. The effects of climate change would be an absolute disaster. So how do we create the jobs? We cannot do that alone. Under the current economic systems, for a company, it's not viable. That's why you don't get to the bottom two and a half billion people. But if you put people together, high net worth individuals who care for whatever reasons to do something back, if you do that with governments together, with NGOs, so we put different together the Rwandan government, obviously, ourselves, uh, Ian Wood in this case from the Wood Foundation, and together we're creating 80,000 livelihoods in Rwanda that we couldn't do alone. So these partnerships, uh, goal number 17, these partnerships for the common good, are an enormously important part for solving the Sustainable Development Goals. In terms of the financial market, uh, obviously... um, what Nick would argue as well is the most important thing is uh, infrastructure, 90, billion, 90 trillion going to be invested in the next 15 years, 6 trillion a year. Uh, look at London, most of the road system still comes from the Roman times, so what we're deciding now really locks us in for a long time to come. Again, coming back from Africa, all these cities are going to be, you know, uh, you know the, the Mombasas of this world or the uh, Addis Abebas are going to be mega cities, the Lagoses. So how we design and develop them, climate smart buildings, transport, density, is going to really make the difference if we're going to live or not. Most of that carbon emission happens in that concentration. Right now 50% of the world population lives in cities with the 7.5 billion people i.e. three and a half billion people live in cities. The world goes to 10 billion people and 70% will live in cities. That's seven billion. So we're going from three billion to seven billion. We're going to double the number of cities in this world. Frightening perspective. It means that every eight weeks, nine weeks in this world, we build in New York. So how we build that is, is going to be very important. So we need to be sure that we have the understanding and the awareness first, and then the products. I would argue that there are some inherent structural issues in the financial market that need to be solved. But I would also argue that we don't have enough of the products that, you know, despite some people feeling frustrated that they can't get the financing, that we don't come with concrete products that can actually be put forward. The banks themselves are not going to come with products. But increasingly, you see banks wanting to have uh, green financing, impact investing, that market is actually growing very fast. If I look at Unilever again, where we invest quite a lot of money every year. We, pay, we, we spend four billion in, in, in capital spend. We have the spendings behind uh, what we do in our infrastructure, several billions. So we're quite big spender. But my return on invested capital is 19%. And it has been for the last four or five years. So a very high return on basically running the development agenda. And and by the way, our shareholders are happy because over the 10 years, despite what some people say or read in the papers, we've had a 300% shareholder return. It's a very good model. And you will have that if you have a 19% return on invested capital. But I've created those products. I can finance them myself, I put the right people together. I don't need to deal with all these buckets. And where the challenge is right now is in the system is that although everybody understands what needs to be done, the returns are actually very high it is that the people that do the investment are not the ones that see the return. Someone needs to invest in sustainable palm oil by financing the farmers for two or three years when they don't have the yield. But then the benefit might not get to the person who is financing that. You see that? So you need to line people up in a value chain and start to think differently about what their roles are and how value is being shared in that that value chain. Even to the point that you need to be sure that the farmer, the poverty, the one that has the wrong end of the stick, is also protected. So you need to design new systems based on trust to do that. Where we are able to do this, we move mountains. We've created the rice fund, uh, for example, with TPG, uh, which I happen to be on the board of, which is a two billion fund. It was subscribed in two minutes uh, because, because many people now, uh, certainly high net worth people, go to banks, any bank, UBS or whatever, and they say, I want my money now <laughs> to go to Uh, You know, there is 34 trillion dollars of money in the next 15, 20 years that is being transferred from our generation to the younger generation. And we're looking at that and and, uh, what you see is that this younger generation is incredibly purpose-driven. And so that transfer of that wealth will probably galvanize even more the market for impact investing. So I think the, uh, whatever we want to call it. So I think the challenge for us more is um, there are, as I said, some structural challenges that, that Nick can allude to, but the challenge more is to find the right products and to bring these people together, based on a different level of partnership and trust, to be able to handle that whole value chain. If I can just very yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 That's my call. No, I agree with that. I agree with that. The way, so, so I 100% agree with what you're saying. The way we are trying to solve that in Unilever is, for example, we now have um, about 5,000 social entrepreneurs, we would call them, that actually attack these social issues on the ground, uh, linked into our value chains. So we would be heavily financing them ourselves. Very Two-second example, Ivory Coast, a lot of mayonnaise, because the Belgian habits... You know, colonies, uh, Belgium, France, whatever. A lot of (laughs) mayonnaise, but no bottle suppliers. Uh, Mayonnaise being imported from Belgium, five times the price, ridiculous. Houston, we have a problem. We need mayonnaise in the Ivory Coast. So, but I don't want mayonnaise in the Ivory Coast. I want 10,000 smallholder farmers who have a job in the Ivory Coast. Mayonnaise for me is a means to an end. So Unilever, way too big. We can't do that. Paul, it's too complex. I love you, but I can't do it. I find a small entrepreneur who does fish farming and has a, always with a telephone and manages the fish farms in Ghana so that they feed well and that they get a higher yield, help these poor farmers, lift them. I go to an entrepreneur like this, I said, you know, get me 5,000 smallholder farmers in, in Ivory Coast to produce the eggs or the, the sunflower oil, whatever you need for the whole thing and you know, one or two years time I put a system in place like that. That's the type of social entrepreneurship, that's the type of investment we should encourage and drive significantly faster. We find far more creativity in that sector that we upscale than we find anywhere else. So how can you set up systems that connect them better? It's what you're really talking about. So we're thinking about that, but I agree with you, it's not happening at the scale it should be having.
1: And uh, the, the first question, how do you, the psychology of influential people, why don't they get it? Why do they apparently act in what we can see? It, why, that they are acting in a way that is actually against their self-interest, against the interests of uh, people in general. So why don't they see it? How can we influence them?
0: Yeah, it's the famous prisoner's dilemma. I'm not sure that they don't see it. It's just that they feel disempowered. It's also individuals, you know? If you talk about all of us, Often I hear, I'm too small, the problem is too big, I cannot make a difference. Or if I do it, I look out of the window, I still see my neighbor smoking a cigarette, driving his SUV out of his driveway, you know, and and going for the next big purchase. So what difference does it make? So we we in Unilever have created something that we call uh, small actions, big difference. If we collectively could make people aware of what its individual power is, we can actually move individual behaviors, uh, quite fast, and we're seeing that on some things. Uh, we see the market moving quite rapidly on, on food in terms of to, uh, demanding, actually, uh, sustainable sourcing, organic, bio, neighborhood farms. Uh, there we've created enough awareness. On plastics, you see the same thing. We've created enough collective awareness. The movements to deplasticize your bathroom or your home is growing faster than anybody can cater to it. Sure. They still appear to be acting against yeah, against well yeah, 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 yeah. Sorry about they that. Care about sure. Puzzles yeah. Things. So I, I think the, the short tenure of CEOs has something to do with that. The <laughs> the drivers of their performance have something to do with that. As I said, it drives your behaviour. So there's no question about that. It's a survival game out there in an economy that's not functioning very well. And also it's damn hard to do it because you have to put these coalitions together. You have to run risk. There is a vested order. There are the cynics. If you see in the Netherlands with that previous question, there are the newspapers, etc. They're not interested in the solution. They're just interested in trying to pull you down or stop you. And often, there's also a risk of going fast in terms of bearing the costs whilst others get the benefits. So many of these factors get in the way. But I think there, there are some changes happening driven by the young demanding more purpose and demanding from companies to be more purposeful, driven by uh, transparency. The internet has some good elements, we're discovering some other ones. And by the fact that the cost of not doing things is actually becoming higher than the cost of doing things for those few CEOs that might not have the moral compass. So if we can put these right coalitions now together, we, I think we can overcome some of these challenges that might have been more difficult five or ten years ago. <laughs>
1: We, thank you, we're very close to the end. Now, you've got to imagine now that we're in the uh, Blitz session of the um, Larsen Caruana chess match. So only only one sentence questions, please. I'm just going to take That's three one sentence okay. questions and ask Paul to close it out very uh, quickly. Um, there's this, this lady just, just here. Yeah, the, no. I meant the one there, sorry, some, some people are going to have to mi- miss out. Um, and there's that lady right at the back, right at the far back. You're going to have to excuse me, there, there are lots of hands, so. Um, and then there's the, there's the, the, the yellow T-shirt here. And, but please, absolutely one sentence, far away. who got cool. it first? Where's the first me? one? Shall I go first? I've lost it now. Yes, please, but very fast.
2: Um, I was wondering how can we use the issue of plastic pollution, which has really captured the public's imagination, to address issues like climate change as they're both driven by unsustainable uh, consumption patterns?
1: Thank you. Right at the back, please. Hello. Hi. Hi, Paul. Uh, Thank you so much. Um, uh, Which is the brand? of under Unilever that it's uh, growing bigger, like the green brand that is growing bigger under Unilever and why is that in your opinion? Is it because it's a human it indulges a human need or an environmental need? Thank you. Thank you. And this last very last one just here please. Yellow T shirt. Do need to wait the microphone? Yes. Um, in the interest of brevity, um, to what extent is the circular economy a utopian ideal? And what are the critical factors that need to make it fall in place in the time that society has?
0: Yeah. So uh, a circular economy is not a utopian idea. Uh, nature doesn't know waste. Waste hasn't been invented by us. That's the sad thing. We have decided uh, five years ago we want to run all of our factories, 562 at that time, with zero waste. Product supply said it can be done. I said, don't worry, you get a few years. Not as many as you want, but you get three, four years to convert. We actually did that in two and a half, three years. What we found was by just designing things differently, not only do we save a lot of material, cost issue, we get higher motivation, quality, goes, all the other things combined. Europe is now implementing a fairly progressive package on circular economy that, that comes from the time of Pat- Patishnik still when he was commissioner. We think that that could save Europe about $1 trillion. But it requires an infrastructure to be set up. If you now think that plastic, all the plastic we use, uh, only 14% gets reused. 86% is lost in economic value after its first use. It's bizarre. We just came, uh, Nick and myself, from Indonesia, where the World Bank IMF meetings were. And we're setting up in Indonesia now, which is one of the main polluters, like some other countries in Southeast Asia, systems to put recycling in place on on, uh, plastic. And by the way, it's very good economics. But a company alone cannot do that. They don't have that critical mass. If you put these coalitions together, governments, uh, you can go quite fast, quite far. So a circular economy where nothing goes to waste, I think is a mindset issue more than anything else. And we're seeing it happening. Now the good thing is now increasingly we get to a sharing economy with many things already, which is a certainly a part of and, and a direction of a, uh, of a circular economy. But yeah, if you see in, in, in uh, the fact now that... Um, uh, uh, one and a half uh, to two billion people are basically consuming today over 90% of the world's resources, whilst we are already using more than one and a half planet. All the other people where I just came from are not consuming anything, and they aspire to consume like us. It just doesn't work. There is no alternative. So a circular, a company that thinks about that, that's why we and Unilever have totally decoupled growth from environmental impact will have a competitive advantage which brings me to the plastic issue because plastic hits you on all the things it clogs the oceans uh, it, it it's related to fashion which is a big driver of it it is uh, immediately on reputations of our companies you now see a photo of a bottle on a beach or in an ocean and you're gone with your product in my opinion so fifteen uh, uh, um uh, 15% of the carbon emissions related to the production of all of that, it's a fossil fuel thing. So people are starting to think c- quite rapidly now in, in the, on the um, uh, supply side of changing, because in this case, the demand side is already faster. And there are indeed people looking at how fast that went on the demand side, what can we learn from that, to have that also on some of the other system changes that need to happen, like climate change. And I think that book still needs to be written. And we have a few, You know, some people would argue a few months, but I think over the next year or two, we will get uh, better on that. In terms of the brands of Unilever and green brands, we don't look only at it on green brands, because what we're talking here about with the Sustainable Development Goals is obviously environmental and social. But for example, Domestos, which you know very well, has a goal to build 25 million toilets. We're well on the way to do that. The brand is growing very fast. But the way we do this requires us to be sustainable, 100% recyclable plastic and all the other things. But it's the goal, the overall goal of attacking open defecation. makes it very motivating to work on the brand, makes the brand also very close to the issues that are out there. So we've come up with products, like for example in South Africa there was a big water shortage. People couldn't flush their toilets anymore. Hygiene is often an issue of smell more than anything else. So we had a product that just masked the smell. So you basically used the same water, but you didn't have to, and it changed the color. So it didn't have to deal with some of the unintended consequences. We would have never found out this product if our brand was not so focused on solving these world problems. We, we put other uh, waterless shampoos out there now, which are doing very well for us, coming out of the Brazil droughts when people in Sao Paulo couldn't take a shower type thing. So it, it also advances our innovations quite rapidly. Uh, another brand is Dove. I deliberately take non-environmental ones, but Dove fights for women's self-esteem. When they reach 100 million women, improve their self-esteem. Many of you have seen the advertising, like sketches and all the other things. Dove in, if in, is in many schools now, 10 million a year, to give women self-esteem. Not surprising, the brand is always growing high or, or, or single double digit. Boy, which is a brand that we had to adjust, because normally you need to wash your hands For 30 seconds with water there isn't enough water it's only 10 seconds now so we have a better product uses less water but its only mission is to help a child reach the age of five we've hit 600 million people by being in all the schools teaching them hand washing sure it sells more soap because you create a practice but if you make that soap sustainably and all the other things then you solve a societal issue those are brands with a purpose by the way also doing very well even a brand like Ben & Jerry's, you might argue, is ice cream, it's pure pleasure, it's indulgence. Do we really need that? i leave that question to you. But if we can design Ben & Jerry's in a totally sustainable way and use the brand as an activist, it was the only brand that was at the COP21, which is not an environment for brands and, and corporates. It was the only brand that was allowed on the floor with all the negotiations because it had this ice cream with this big slogan, if it's melted, it's ruined. And they went around everywhere, the whole world, <laughs> with, with, uh, with that, uh, you know, in Tesla cars and all that stuff. Sure, the ice cream did well, but boy, did it bring the issue forward, just like it did with the issue of LGBT. Or now we have a wonderful ice cream, which is peach and mint, which is in the US, which is a very good combination flavor, and it's called "impeach Mint. So, uh, you know, so even, even, um, even activists, even activist brands, people now want brands, it's like human beings. Brands need to stand for something, have a point of view, and make this world better. And if you do that, you'll do very well. Because then consumers say, I like you, I want you to be around. So that is my whole point. Become, with all what you do, part of the solution, don't be part of the problem.
1: Paul, we have to come to end. There's a whole host of questions. Our apologies that we weren't able to take them, but it's a measure of the inspiration that you've been. Paul, you've been a a real leader from the big picture of sustainable development goals down to what we just heard about how um, brands can uh, work magic if they're designed well and you have a sense of humor. So I think you've been in the presence of one of the world's great leaders. If you give him a big round of applause, he might come back. There you are. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you you all for coming.
3: Okay. Wake <laughs> up. There's inner layer to this inner layer. and right. Yeah,
1: it happened the last time
2: we tried It to... happens all the
0: time. Yeah. <laughs> 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 what have you right now,
3: then. Yeah, <laughs> and then as a scene. <laughs>
0: Is <laughs> 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 it? This is like very satisfying. But right? right, let, let, let me
3: experience uh, that. that. No, 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 I want to
2: experience. <laughs> <laughs> I just want. don't. I, I'm
3: gonna
4: give it back to you anyways. So.
3: <laughs> do you just put it in like that? Okay. I don't think it's gonna look right. No, I don't, I don't. think as a senior, I just do, do not. <laughs> So do you want to take it out, like put like your hands in, like, I don't know, like... I do not. Okay. <laughs> oh, it's I'll sit down See you later. Yeah. <laughs>
1: do you want to just take it out? Yeah. Let <laughs> the
2: No,
4: it yeah, yeah. no no you know no, no, that that's how you how you finish tasks you delegate you <laughs> have you you Are you though <laughs>